Hello, welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. We talk with Ethan Zahn, professional soccer player and winner of Survivor Africa. He went on to compete in Survivor All-Stars and several other reality programs. In addition to his television career, he co-founded Grassroots Soccer, which is an adolescent health organization that uses the power of soccer to educate, inspire, and mobilize at-risk youth in developing countries. Um, they help them to overcome challenges and to live healthier lives. He has survived cancer twice and created My Crunch Bowl, an innovative tool for eating cereal and snacking. <laughs> I really enjoyed our conversation. Ethan was very authentic and gives lots of great advice. You don't want to miss this episode. I was researching you a bit um, uh, just to prepare for our discussion, and I feel like there's so much to talk about that I, I, I we have about an hour, and I was like, I, I'm like, how am I going to get all of this um, in in? So uh, bear with me because I may, <laughs> I'll try to find natural segues. But um, first, I just want to thank you, you know, so much for for being on Relatable and taking the time to meet with us. We have a um, well, the person that referred you to me is a good friend of TFA Soft Skills and just a good friend outside of work. And she met you um, at a dinner party, I think, where you were doing some motivational speaking, actually. Yeah, it was a, actually it was a fun. I had auctioned myself off uh, to the <laughs> highest bidder at a cancer organization to watch Survivor with a Survivor. And so I ended up at this beautiful home outside of uh, Maryland someplace right. and, and watch Survivor and answer questions. And then, yeah, yeah, learned all about everything you're doing. Yeah, it's so funny because Tara has like strangely, even though it's not in her job description, become like this like talent scout for me. <laughs> And she must be out in the world more than I am because she always, you know, finds this great guest. So, um, Ethan, thank you so much for being here. I think the first place I'd like to start is your uh, athletic career. And um, interestingly, maybe we could start from from even college because I saw that you played in college. So I'm just interested just to give you like two two seconds on us. Right. We're hoping that this podcast helps people that are trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up or <laughs> that are actually at an, inter in an intersection point in their own life where they're trying to think about maybe I want a job change or maybe I want to do the thing that I've always loved, but I've been afraid to take that leap. And so you're someone who's had a lot of pivots from what I can tell. <laughs> and so maybe we could start kind of earlier, right? And maybe not necessarily at the very beginning, but at that time where you were playing in college, right? You, uh, I think Vassar's a D1 school. No. Um, is it not a D1 school? Not a D1 school. <laughs> Division three powerhouse. Okay. <laughs> all girls college. So I that gives you a little perspective on uh, how hard it was to play soccer at an all girls college. <laughs> yeah. So maybe just tell me about that. Like, like your, your, what you were thinking at that time, right. In terms of playing sports. And was that always, was the goal for you to continue and play professional sports? Maybe we'll just start there. Sure. Well, I mean, I started playing sports when I was really young. I had two older brothers. And so they'd always just put me in the backyard and then they just start shooting soccer balls in my face. So of course I ended up being a goalkeeper and uh, lucky for me, I matured pretty much before everyone in my grade. So I pretty much been 5'10 since I've been like seven years old. I you know, so they just stuck me in the goal, but then everyone caught up to me as, you know, years went on. Yeah. But, you know, I ended up being a decent player in high school, went on to play um, at Vassar College in New York, Division Three. And to be honest, I didn't have intentions of to continue playing soccer after college. You know, I studied uh, pre-med biology with a minor in marine biology. So after college, I moved to Hawaii because I'm like, oh, my God, there's a lot of water here. I'm bound to find a job when I study for the MCATs wasn't the case at all. I ended up uh, working in a youth hostel, cleaning toilets and making beds because you got free health insurance if you work for in uh, Hawaii for 60 days from the government. So I was like, yeah, this is great. But to make a long story longer, there was an advertisement in the paper saying, new professional soccer team, the Hawaii Tsunami. And they, I think it was just a PR stunt to get the community involved, but I showed up for tryouts and I made it as a walk-on and I'm like, screw med school. Like I'm playing soccer for the rest of my life. 
Oh my gosh. When you were in school too, like preparing for that, like Vassar's is, is a hard school to get into, right. In terms of like, so were you someone in high school that was pretty dedicated and were you, did, did you, did academics come easy to you? And was that like, were you very focused on that in terms of getting into a good school with that path in mind? Well, I think soccer helped a lot for me yeah. to get yeah. into Vassar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was very academic. When I was uh, 14 years old, my father passed away from colon cancer. And so at that time in my life, all I really wanted to do was sit in my room, not come out and play or talk to any of my friends or anything like that. But it was my family. And then it was my teammates, my soccer teammates, my friends. They're the ones that like rallied around me. They're the ones that reinforced like my values in a time when I felt completely alone. So after my dad died, I really dug deep into sports and mm. school. And I can't say I was the best uh, academic. I was good at sports, wasn't so great at school, but I tried really hard. I applied everything I did to my sports, to my academic world. And I got, you know, I did well enough. Um, but then getting to Vassar, it was, it was a struggle for me to balance the sports and the school. You know, I was taking, you know, like I said, pre-med classes. So there's labs and there's science classes and, uh, you know, Vassar College itself isn't known for the science or the sports, but uh, those together had to fill yeah. my plate, you know, pretty heavily. And then when you went to Hawaii and you started playing, tell me a little bit about that progression and how long I, I and I may have the chronology wrong but did, did survivor happen after after that and like was that was there a transition from when you finished being a professional athlete to, to moving into that so maybe just talk a little bit about how long that was and, and actually I think people would be really interested in understanding what is that like because I think there's a an image or a view of what playing a sport at that level is like and so maybe you could give us a little perspective you know you've had like four careers in one <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about that, right? Like what that was really like. Sure. You know, this is, we're talking around 1996 to yeah. 2001 was when I was playing professional soccer okay. and soccer in the United States at that time was in a transition. They were in a pivot point as well. They, we just had the world cup in the United States. The new professional league was starting called the major league soccer. So what was interesting is like all the really incredible players got drafted to play in MLS Mm -hmm. which left a little bit of a void in the lower level, the lower level professional leagues. So the Hawaii tsunami was in the lower level professional leagues. So what a great I had name. A, what? It's such a great name. Such a great Sorry. name. Right? It's such I a love great. it. Yeah. You know, I played for the Hawaii tsunami, played for the Cape Cod Crusaders, you know, and then um, so for me, once I got on that train, I was like, this is great. I love it. It wasn't necessarily about the money. We weren't really making that much money. For a lot of us, it was a second job. We'd be either you know, teaching at school. So we had the evenings free. We'd be coaching soccer camps during the day, training at night with the team, traveling on weekends. So it was a full-time job, but you weren't like, what you think now professional soccer like the david beckhams and the cristiano ronaldo's making millions of dollars especially not in the united states so for me it was definitely about can i do it i'm like a little bit of an underdog here i'm coming from a d3 school i'm an average player that got a little bit lucky can i make a go at this and so i had really fun doing it traveling around the us like i said i played in hawaii i played in cape cod massachusetts i played in israel i went to zimbabwe and I played in the Zimbabwe Premier League. And that was a moment that my life completely changed. You know, living and playing in a foreign country um, and being part of that community was a complete life change for me. You know, I looked different. I spoke a different language. I was a different religion. Um, I looked different. I ate different foods. So like, and here I was in this foreign country trying to play a sport. Uh, so that was an incredible learning experience for me. And it was also the first time I witnessed HIV and AIDS and what was just happening in the world around HIV and AIDS and how it was just destroying this community that I was now a part of in Zimbabwe. And so at that time in my life, you know, I, I was becoming a little bit more worldly, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. and aware of things that were happening outside of Lexington, Massachusetts or Cape Cod, right. Massachusetts, you know? Yeah. So you, I was just going to ask you, so you grew up in the Northeast, which I suspect is very, I mean, a, like radically different than what you're describing. So what beyond just the, um, I mean, I, I, like everything you mentioned with, with it being so different, I guess for you, 
what was the most challenging then, right? To, to try to understand how you fit into that or, and I know you have a team maybe where you're bonding, but even the team there, I'm, I'm guessing you're still different. So are you just feeling like an outsider all the time? And, and how did you deal with that? Incredible question. Uh, so it was interesting because I was living with a wealthy white Jewish mm. family in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. Yet I was then going, playing with the locals in the townships um, where they come from poverty. And so that dichotomy for me was, was difficult to yeah. navigate. And, you know, cause like, I'd be going back to like, you know, a bed and food and stuff. And in the life of a professional soccer player in Zimbabwe is a good one, but it's not, like I said, it's not, and right. even me coming from America, uh, just not making zero dollars has a better life than these guys playing, you know, professional soccer over there. So that really didn't sit well with me. Um, you know, did I fit in? Luckily, when you're on the field, it doesn't really matter like where you're from, what you look like, because you're working together to achieve this common goal, like winning games. But like when the game was over, yeah, you know, I was, like I said, I, I didn't speak the same language. Things were happening that I didn't really understand trying to fit in with these guys, you know, that you always, you know, they're always asking a little bit for money. Can you take me to America? Can you get me a team over in the USA? So there was always that, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, wealthy white American and, and, and kind of right. not as wealthy, you know, local African type situation going on. It's uh, interesting. But, yeah. yeah. No, I was just going to say, it's interesting when I was with, um, <clears throat> before I went on my own, I worked a long time in professional services. And um, one of the organizations I worked for, we have a huge presence in India. And so I went to in India several times on in this, when I worked for them. And it was such an, and we had a, a U.S. firms component, right? So people that were there worked for the U.S. firms, but they were in India. Uh, <clears throat> and while they were at work, like the structure of how people worked and the support and the resources were very much like people have here in the US, right? And then they would go home and it, particularly women, right? Women that were working there would then go home and go back to these very, you know, patriarchal, like traditional situations. And yet you'd come to work and you'd be treated differently within this construct, right? That we created. And, and I just visiting there a few times, I mean, certainly the, the poverty is overwhelming, but then also just that kind of, you know, if you hear about context switching, <laughs> Like being able to just right be be in that environment, I was so um, amazed and inspired by a lot of these women that would like be formidable in the in like the business environment and then go home and have to kind of code switch and change it. Yeah, and so that's a very like small comparison, but I feel like at least you and being witness to that, and it's like, what can I do to change that, or how can I help that? I mean, I definitely changed my lifestyle over there. You know, I wouldn't wear flashy clothes or brand new cleats yeah. and I, I would take local transportation. I didn't want to show up in like a car or, you know, so I, I made an effort to live the lifestyle that of mm -hmm. the guys that I was playing with um, just to try to kind of erase some of that, the barrier and, and, and work on the relationships off the field as well as on the field. Did you grow up with means? Like, were you comfortable growing up? Were you in, a, in an affluent community? So was that an even more stark difference for you? Yeah, I definitely, Lexington, Massachusetts, an upper middle class. Yeah. You know, my father is an entrepreneur or was an entrepreneur before he passed away. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we were okay as a family. Yeah. And so was that, so tell me then the transition um, in terms of soccer and, and leaving that, right? And then was that a conscious decision you were ready to move on? Was it, hey, you're done here. <laughs> We've had enough, right? Like it sort of just ran, you know, the runway ran out. Tell me about that. And then how did Survivor come to be? Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, um, living in Africa and having that incredible experience for me, you know, ticked a box, you know, playing here in the United States, you, know, you get 2000 people a game, maybe three on a good day. But it's like I said, it's an extra activity for some guys. But in Africa, yeah. it was everything we were getting 40 50,000 people a game you know people are like saving up all their money all week just to afford a ticket to go to the game on the weekend like we are superstars over there so that was what I was looking for to like fulfill my dream of being a professional soccer player so once that happened I, I felt good about myself I returned back to the United States I continued playing here for a little while but my career kind of started to spiral out of control and I realized I wasn't gonna be the next superstar here in the U.S. 
So I made the difficult decision to move on, hang up my boots. And I actually was coaching soccer in Teaneck, New Jersey at Fairleigh Dickinson University. And I was also applying for jobs in New York City, you know? Um, and so, you know, my mom said I was un unemployed. I said, mom, I'm in between life choices. So you ask about, you know, all these, yeah. you know, shifts yeah. You are never, ever unemployed. You're always in between life choices. <laughs> exactly. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, so I actually applied and got an advertising job in New York City, which was fantastic. Uh, however, about two weeks before I was actually supposed to go in and start my job, there was a nationwide hiring freeze for this advertising firm that had, you know, satellite offices all over the country. And they literally fired me before I even got to go in, you know, I had a contract, I traded in all my cleats and sweatpants for suits and ties and shoes. And I'm like, what? Like I, now I don't have a job. And then it, it was at that moment, I said to my friend, I'm like, what do you want to do today? And he says, well, we can make a video for Survivor. And I'm like, hmm, that will keep me busy for 24 hours. Let's do it. At least it's something to do. So we ran around New York City. I was supposed to make a video for him and he was supposed to make a video for me, but we ran out of time for my buddy and we just sent in my video to Survivor and then I got picked and uh, obviously the, the rest is history. Oh my gosh. So tell me, how much did you know about the show before you even did that? Like, I knew did a little you know bit. Yeah. I'd seen like the second half of the first season and the entire second season. So first season was Borneo, Richard Hatch one. Second season was Australia, Tina Wesson one. And so I had a little clue, but don't forget, this is 2001. Reality TV was just starting. It wasn't like we see things today. There were no other reality shows. There was the real world and Survivor. And that's it. There's no Big Brothers, no Real Housewives. There's no Amazing Race, no American Idol nothing that's kind of all we had back then so getting on this show and being part of the show was a, kind of a big deal back then you know and did you feel like it's interesting because I was looking and right and I realized you've had like multiple runs in in the world of reality tv right and so when I first saw that I'll be honest with you I'm like this is I'm so curious about this because I'm, I'm curious about it from a from like a philosophical, like you want it once. And I know people are going to be really like, tell us about that experience and what does it mean to be there? So I, I know I have to ask those questions <laughs> and I will, but I'm also like, what's the motivation, right? To pursue that over and over. And what is it that you're getting out of that experience? And, and is it, I know you have a platform and you have things you're very passionate about. So is it a means to, to fund what you are trying to do globally with grassroots? Or, or right, or I'm just fascinated, like like to win it, and then you'd be like, I, I got it, right? But yet you go back for more. Just tell me a little bit about that. Like, what's the draw and the motivation to do that? Well, for me as an athlete, yeah, I yeah. saw Survivor as one of the best games on the planet. It touches on every part of you as a human being: mental, physical, social, spiritual, environmental, even financial. You're winning million bucks, and to be able to do that on the world stage in front of millions of people at such a high pressure situation is something that I just, th I thrive on that. I love it. I was a ah. goalkeeper in soccer and that's what I look forward to. So that first time I applied, it was an adventure. It was <laughs> excitement. Uh, it was, you know, proving to myself, can I do something like this? Uh, and it was never for me really motivated by the money part of it. it I was motivated by winning the title of survivor. The so then like when you get off the show, you know, and uh, they call you back, hey, do you want to come do an all-star version? You can't say no to that, right? <laughs> you know, like, yes, I won, but maybe I can win again. I don't know. It's kind of right. like, you know, professional athletes, you know, stay in that one extra year. Should they keep going? Do you right. the top? Do you give it another go? So I gave it another go because it was just a wonderful opportunity. And once I was on the, after I got off the show, like I said yes to everything. You know, yeah. I understood the value of reality TV. Like you said, I understood that, you know, you have a, it's a shelf life. You know, I got six months. I'm going to be really, everyone's going to love me for six months and then it's going to be over. So I wanted to take advantage of that moment. So anytime anyone offered me anything, I just say yes. And, uh, you know, I went on, I did Fear Factor and Amazing right. Race and Hollywood Squares and Family Feud and just, I did them all. Right. And that's because why not? Like, why wouldn't I say yes to something like that? So I'm an athlete. I'm a competitor. I love those situations. So it was a little bit of both. Um, grassroots soccer didn't start until. So I donated the money I won from Survivor Africa um, to start grassroots soccer. 
And that's because of my time in Zimbabwe and witnessing firsthand what was happening with HIV and AIDS. A couple of my friends got sick, got kicked off the team. They ended up living a horrible, horrible end of their life. So, you know, I was uh, aware of what was going on in Africa, didn't do anything about it. And 27 years old, didn't have any means to do anything about it. So then when Survivor came along, and once again, I was brought back to Africa to compete on Survivor in, in Kenya, I had another experience, you know, in Africa and even during the show, there was a moment where I won a reward challenge where I won these two goats, which I wasn't so happy about, but I got to take these goats to this little village of Wamba. And before I left this village of Wamba, I was hanging out in the parking lot of Wamba Hospital. And when I was hanging out in the parking lot of the hospital, all these little Kenyan children came out and they were touching my white skin and they're playing with my hair. Like they've never seen anyone like me before. And that's when I busted out a little mini soccer ball, a hacky sack. You know, and we just started playing. We're smiling, we're laughing, and we're connecting to this sport that we both love and in a language that we understood. And before I left this parking lot, I asked one of the nurses, like, why are all these kids just hanging out in the parking lot of a hospital? He says, These are the kids that are HIV positive. So, like here I was in the middle of this game, this right. cutthroat game of survivor to win a million dollars by pretending to be African. <laughs> I had that real life experience. And yeah. that's why. It was important for me after the show to use the money and the platform and whatever this show had to offer to do something good in the world. And that's kind of how we started grassroots soccer. I want to talk about grassroots soccer I, before we get there, just for the for those that are curious about the experience. Right. So it's funny, as you were joining before you joined, we were Missy, who's who's not on camera right now, but we were joking. She's like, they're not really going to let you die. Right. Like in any of these like scenarios, right, where they're these life-threatening scenarios or where you're kind of out and it's you and the environment. So she's like, they're never going to really let you die. So I think there's, there's a, when you're not in it, like you have been in it, right. And you can actually tell the tale of what's, how much is real, how much is, you know, it's like, I almost picture, is there like, it's like a set environment where you have the lights and you're like stepping into it. Right. But in, I think in the reality where particularly in the game of survivor, like, I think it's, probably as close as it can be, right? Where they're, they're always there filming, but they try to not get involved, right? But I'm just curious, like, what about that? Like, in terms of the, all those stressors that you talked about, like mental, spiritual, physical, like, tell me about, if you can, that experience and what what it's like. I mean, I, I, I feel like there's a better question to ask, but it's kind of how, I, I don't know how else better to ask you to kind of explain it. Yeah, it's interesting because the game itself is manufactured. You're never going to find 20 strangers deserted in an exotic location, like competing for stupid stuff, right? So the, the, the game itself is manufactured, but the reactions and the emotions, that's real. You know, so everything you're going through out there is like full on, very intense. You're all, everything you do has a consequence. Mm. You have to make friends with these people and friendships based on trust, but you can't trust anyone. You know, and the concept of the show is that you need these people to get ahead in the game, but you want to be the last person standing. So everyone you vote off, you have to vote them off in such a way where they come back and they like you enough or they respect you enough that they want to give you a million dollars, right? So it's a really complex game of politics and relationships and athletic and endurance. So that aspect of it, um, I think is really fascinating. And you don't necessarily need to create or or stage stuff. A lot of people think, oh, there's a set and it's staged. But when you take away food, you take away water, you're tired, you're hungry, you're thirsty, like your true person comes out and you can't hide from the cameras unless you're the best actor or actress in the world. And like, you, you don't need to create drama. The drama is going to happen. Like we'll do right. anything. We'll run around circles for hours for a Dorito. Like you don't have to do anything, you know? So that part of it, it is, I've been on a lot of reality shows and I think Survivor has been the most legit in terms of their storytelling and the kind of rules. Like we can't talk to the cameraman. They don't wear scented lotions. They don't chew gums. They don't wear a watch. They don't drink water in front of us. We can talk to them. They won't talk back. You know, there is a real threat to danger. You're right. They won't let you die, but they'll let you get this close to dying. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, they said there are guys with guns out there to shoot the lions if they got close, but we never saw them. So, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting game. Um, and in terms of the set, there's no set, but at the challenges, yeah, there's 
people feel that, uh, or, or I thought going into it, like, oh, challenge of a couple of cameramen. There's like two to 300 people at each challenge. You just don't see them. You know, there's cameramen, sound guys, challenge guys, wardrobe, uh, there's helicopters, people underground, people in trees, you know, there's everything. So there's a lot of people at the challenges. Um, so that part feels a little bit like a set, but once yeah. again, you're never gonna roll upon this stuff on an island anyway. So of course it's gonna be manufactured. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, your one-stop shop for workshops, coaching, speaking, and soft skills development. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.tfasoftskills.com for more information. Tell me about the like the 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 competitive piece to win, right? And the relationship aspect, and then the like duplicitous piece of like it sounds like almost impossible. <laughs> like, how do you manage that? Right. Where you need to be authentic and genuine yet you're being calculated, right? Like, are, like how, how much are you, are you calculating the moves you're making? Like, is it to your point of like, you were in such a reactionary state, but for you who won it, right? Like, are you someone who was trying to think five steps ahead? Like, how did you manage that? So the way I explain Survivor, it's a game of relationships. It's one 39-day networking event. Like, how can you sell yourself and your ideas to the other people to get forward in the game? And it's how you treat the other people and how you interact with the other contestants that determine how well and how far you will go in that game. So it's a fine line on how you play. And that's why the game's beautiful. You can play 100 different ways and win 100 different ways. You know, mm -hmm. so whether you are a total jerk, lying, stealing from everyone, great, you know, more power to you, whether you're more authentic and go with a, a more personal, real, authentic, loyal type of strategy. That was my gameplay. Mm -hmm. Like my whole gameplay is I wanted to make myself a crucial member of the community, crucial to everyone else's survival. So without me, they would struggle even more. So yes, it was manipulative, of course, but it was also uh, no one else really worked on those personal. I worked on a personal relationship with each and every person out there. And what was interesting is I aligned with people that I knew had skills that I didn't, right? So like, I'm not the A-type personality. I'm not the guy who's gonna stand up and bark orders, but I knew I needed someone like that on my team because that would take the heat away from me. Right. I'm, you know, I needed someone who was a comedic outlet. I needed a, I felt I wanted a, a woman next to me as well to have a little bit more of the compassionate, emotional, you know, side of me come forth. And what ended up happening is, they would come to me to talk about the other contestants. The other contestants would come to me and talk about them. And I could just filter that information and spit it out how I wanted to. Right. Um, so yes, uh, I, like I said, everything has a consequence. If I sleep next to this person, if I take a walk with that person, they go take a leak next to that person. You need to think about that stuff because everyone else is looking at you like, oh, why is he hanging with them? He spent way too much time over there with that person. Why are they swimming together out there? They never talk to each other. So like literally you are 24 hours a day seven days a week for 39 days out there thinking, strategizing, anticipating, plan A, B, C, D. What about the physical um, component of it? And, and the, I'm sure, like you said, you're tired, you're hungry. Like, like how do you mentally get through that? And I, I feel like this is such a relatable question because I feel like there's so many of us and I've talked about this on this show with other people that myself included that have worked so hard to be comfortable in their life, right? Because discomfort is so, uh, this is uh, so uncomfortable. And as you age and grow and you create the, all, all the security around you, right? It's all about this, like, I'm going to go from my air conditioned car to my air conditioned house to eat my <laughs> organic food that I write. Like, it's just so it's so, you know, you spend all this time trying to kind of create this safe life for yourself. Right. And what you've put yourself into is so uncomfortable. And then I think a lot of us have to face whether it's emotional or physical discomfort and, and we're not necessarily equipped, right. We like, so I'm curious for you, if you have any, and I'm sure being an athlete fits into this, but like, how do you, how could you coach us on the mindset, right. Of being in that kind of discomfort and what, what tricks or tips do you have that we could use? You know, sometimes I've purposely put myself in a set of new and unknown set of circumstances where I'm forced to grow as I respond to those new challenges, right? That's mm. something that I, I, I see. Like you're drawn to. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and it also kind of gets back to kind of how I even got on Survivor in the first place is, is because of a, a series of epic failures in my life, you know? And there was a time in my life where I was really very consumed with the like outcome of trying new things in my life that I ended up not trying them at all. So like, you know, if I was afraid to show up at a new class or try out for a, a role in a school play or, you know, I don't know, tell people that I love them, right? You know, like it, it was, it was a, a fear of mine because I was so focused on the outcome of it that I wouldn't even try. So Survivor, you know, the whole reason I tried on the show is because I failed at everything else. So I often say now, like, don't ever, ever worry about failing. Just worry about all the things you'll miss if you don't even try. So applying for Survivor and getting on the show and knowing what I, knowing myself and knowing what I bring to the table, I wasn't as afraid to like try this great big new endeavor because mm -hmm. if I failed, like I failed, you know, I'll learn from that experience and I will be able to grow from that. But then if I didn't even try it at all, I'd probably be kicking myself for the rest of my life. Like, oh, I could have done that. I should have tried this. I should have done that. I should have, should have, should have. That's not in my vocabulary anymore. I'd rather try and fail than not try at all. So yeah. I guess that's kind of a, a way I might, you know, answer that question. And then do you like more tactically, are you like just mind over matter? Like, is it, is it, is it just the power of thought, right? I'm hungry. No, I'm not hungry. Right. You're not hungry right now. You're going to like, like, how do you um, trick yourself <laughs> into pushing through that discomfort? Right. Yeah. What are well, the good thing is it had a, it had an expiration date. It was 39 uh -huh. days. So for me, I could set my mind to that. I knew it's, I'm going to be home taking a shower in 39 days, no matter what happens. And so you can set your mind to that. It, it's long, you know, every day out there feels like seven days. Um, but that's kind of how I would frame it. And to trick myself, I mean, you are so consumed with what's going on and everyone around you. I'm not going to say I was, there's, I wasn't busy all the time because there's a lot of downtime. You know? right. You're only, you know, you're only doing a couple things a day. So there's a lot right, of downtime. Right. Uh, so being able to sit with yourself was part of it. You know, there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable in their own right. self versus the environment. You know, it's, it's yes, I was uncomfortable with you know, sitting in the sand and sleeping in the dirt and not eating, but I was also, there's a lot of time to think and some people are uncomfortable with that. And uh, that was, that was a learning experience for me as well. Like I definitely had to get comfortable, more comfortable in my own skin. I can't say that I'm even there yet with that. Um, yeah, that's, so, but that was really very interesting hard. is like all this stuff was new and exciting the first time I played. The second time I played, completely different experience in the sense that like you, people say it's like, I don't know, because I don't have kids, but it's like childbirth, right? Like it's this beautiful moment. And, but then you forget how horrible it is when you're actually going through it. And, but then you were pregnant again. You're like, oh my God, why am I doing this? I don't want to be pregnant again. I hate my kids, all that stuff. Same with Survivor. You know, like the first time it was fun, it was exciting. It was a new experience. Everything that happened to you was new. The second time around, you did this all over. You're like, why am I here? I'm so hungry. I'm so cold. I hate the bugs. I want to be home. This is stupid. So part of it was uh, I turned a little bit more into like a business kind of endeavor. Like, let's get through this. Let's win uh, more than an adventure experience. How, tell me really quick, and then we'll move on. Um, just in terms of winning, right? And, and going through that whole experience and then actually winning. What does that feel like? And, and how did that change your life, right? Presumably that changed your life significantly. So just, uh, you know, and it was so long ago in the sense that like maybe the social media thing wasn't as much of a thing, but I mean, I'm curious, like just- There was you, no social media. Right, time. right, yeah. So tell uh, me just what that was like for you, maybe emotionally or even then what happened to you, right? In terms of notoriety or people knowing who you are and, and the impact of that on your life. Major life change. You know, I was just a guy, soccer player that was happened to be on this TV show. And I didn't, you know, no one prepares you for a moment like that. And, uh, you know, going into the, I, I had hopes of winning. I didn't think I would win. So when you get off a show like Survivor back in the day, when, you know, 27 million people a week were watching the show, you're just thrust into the spotlight, which was something I wasn't comfortable at all. Like I, I'm a, I was a shy guy. I was a wallflower. Like I wasn't this like, you know, uh, gregarious type of person, I guess you can say. I had to learn that because like I had to be in front of people and I had to like actually extend my hand to shake people's hands. I had to be, 
you know, forthcoming with like information and questions and be friendly to folks. And that was just, that was new to me. It just wasn't part of my lifestyle. So that was interesting, you know, yeah. uh, and it, it opened up a whole new world for me in a good way because I did gain some confidence. I was able to kind of pursue things that I've always wanted to do in my life because I have a big chunk of change. I was comfortable, 27 years old, living in New York City, single, right? Pretty awesome time in my life. And I started to, just to pursue things that I had always wanted to try, but with, didn't have the time or the means to do it. So I got into broadcasting for soccer. I tried to host some other shows, you know, like I just said yes to everything, like I said. So that uh, it totally changed my life and put me on a trajectory that I would have never imagined. One of the things I have to ask you about, because I was looking and I'm just fascinated by it, is um, it says that in 2006, you were on um, the Celebrity Paranormal Project, yes. where you investigated yes. the, uh, uh, it says paranormal activity at the Warson Asylum for the Criminally Insane. You have to tell me about that, because that just that was insane. Yeah, it was, uh, it was you know, so basically they, they took six celebrities and they locked us in this insane asylum for 24, 48 hours. I can't remember. And they gave us challenges to go do. And they would, the challenges we'd had to do were in connection to actually what went on at this mental, you know, insane asylum. So we had to uh, put on a straight jacket and lay on a table in the middle of the night for like an hour or two hours. And, you know, there's no there's no cameraman in there you're filming yourself and so you just get totally freaked out and there were times where you hear a noise or something moves or you feel things are chasing you and we're trying to pull out the paranormal activity so it was a freaky weird night of my life that's for sure you know and to do is this it only, is it only one it's two nights that you were there it was two nights was, we got yeah one night so we got there like five or six in the, in the evening we went through one night the full day and the next night yeah so two nights so a little less than 48 hours and we're just locked in there you know and uh and i was with weird people i'd never met before too rachel hunter and, you know uh, i don't even remember who else was there yeah. some day watch and Ron Peel or something, the, the Tony Little, Tony Little, the guy who did the exercise bike back in the day. So it was just like weird, random people coming together for this reality show. Uh, I don't think like, I would do it again. I was scared. There were moments I was really scared. I really was. Would you say there was paranormal activity or not? Like, how can you even, right? I don't know. I mean, I felt there were one moment at the very end, I felt something like I, there's four of us trying to complete this challenge. We're trying to get out of it bottom of the basement and I was the, the last person and for some reason I just felt like I had to run I'm like I just felt there was something behind me I didn't know what it was so I'm like go run 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 and I just pushed everyone forward I don't know if anyone was there if I got in my own head or whatnot but I just felt like I just had to get the heck out of there oh my gosh all right let's talk a little bit about grassroots uh, because I think it's an important endeavor and the fact that you chose to um pursue you know, this intersection, right, of what you love. I mean, so I'm a big believer that when you have something that you're passionate about and that you love to do, and then you can actually take that and make it part of your work in some capacity, then it doesn't feel like work and you actually thrive. And because it's something you're passionate about, probably it's leveraging your strengths and all these great things come together for it to be a meaningful experience. So tell me, I'm assuming without even knowing you or talking to you that grassroots soccer is that, right? It, to some extent, that's this intersection of the things that you love and that you care about, but maybe just for our listeners, right? And as we talk about this, tell me tell me what it is, what, what you all do and, and how it's been working. Sure. Uh, grassroots soccer is yeah. an adolescent health organization that uses the power of soccer to help educate, inspire, and mobilize young people to overcome the greatest health challenges in life. And the way we do this is we uh, use the world's most popular sport and the heroes and the leader of the sports, the leaders the sports creates to break down barriers, build trust and educate young people to adopt healthy behaviors. So we train professional soccer players, coaches, peer leaders in the community with a curriculum or multiple curriculums in adolescent health. And we send them into the classrooms or the soccer fields or the churches or the temples to deliver these health interventions. And the concept of you know, using a positive role model to impact behavior change um, back in the day was something new. You know, a lot of people created sports programs to give kids access to sports, physical fitness. However, right. we were using sports to just deliver important health information. So at that time, no one's really doing it. So 
we were lucky, right place, right time. We took a bold but humble approach, bold enough to try new things, humble enough to know that we're going to need a lot of help along the way. And so we created this organization called Grassroots Soccer in Zimbabwe, which is you know where I played soccer, as mm -hmm. I mentioned. And then since you know 2003, we've expanded and we've grown. Uh, we're in 60 countries. We've graduated 13 million kids from the program, and um, you know we have a, a raised about 110 million dollars you know since inception. 100 full-time employees, 2,500 trained coaches, lots of incredible partnerships with governments, schools, countries foundations, uh, research institutions. So it's uh, been a really big passion of mine. That's fantastic. And is that something like, is that one of the, like, if I ask you, like, is that a full-time job, right? I mean, is that where you spend a lot of your time in terms of like running that organization? If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfasoftskills.com for more information. I would say it's 50% of my time. Yeah. Uh, I'm mostly in charge of non-traditional fundraising sources, which is our mm -hmm. like high school and college campaign, galas, celebrity soccer games, endurance teams like marathons and, and ultra marathons. So I get to do some of the fun stuff. You know, back when we first started, I moved back to Africa. I was over there piloting the curriculum, you know, living and working, you know, in the communities that we, yeah. we serve which are the poorest of poor communities, um, the slums, we call them. So we go where, you know, uh, it, the communities hit the hardest with drugs, uh, sexual abuse, um, you know, uh, unemployment, that's kind of where we go. And yeah. uh, we plop down a soccer field and instantly we transform the community and we create safe places to play. And we have this game-based, you know, youth-centered uh, curriculum. You know, we are a youth-led organization, which means we always work with the youth to figure out what's going on. Then we work with them again to try to figure out how to fix it. Because if it's got to be effective, if it's going to be effective, it's got to be cool. And if it's going to be cool, it's got to come from the kids we serve. So we really, you know, include the youth in helping us develop the curriculum that we then serve back to them. That's really cool. If people are interested and want to help, right, either financially or otherwise, like I'm thinking I have a kid right now that's a soccer player. He's about to graduate and go to college. And I'm like, hmm, what could he do this summer <laughs> right after his freshman year? So, what you know, if people either want to help actually with soccer or just, you know, other ways, what's the best way to try to reach out and can do that. Um, website's always good. Love to yeah. learn information, grassrootsoccer.org. Uh, but, you know, we have different ways you can get involved. Like you said, you can you know, run little tournaments. We have a uh, good, if he's going to play in college, we have uh, charity games that college uh, soccer programs run for us. Once we're in a marathon. Uh, yeah, we're open to any way people right. want to get involved, whatever that looks like. And it doesn't necessarily have to be financially, you know, motivated. So uh, we're looking to raise awareness and get as many eyeballs on the work that we do everywhere. What do you do your other 50% of time? So if that's like, tell me what else you're doing right now today, right? Because we've talked a little bit about your progress. And I, I do want to talk about health because you and I have a connection on that front that I want to talk about. But but, but beyond, I want to get spend that kind of time at the last. But, but what else are you doing right now that you're working on? Well, my wife and I, like I said, we just moved my Western interior designer. So we moved yeah. to uh, Florida. So we're working on the house. I also, in my days, I... Uh, invented a cereal bowl that keeps your cereal crunchy all day long. Are you sick and tired of soggy cereal? Well, I'm gonna revolutionize the cereal eating experience in one big scoop. I'm gonna put the crunch back in brunch. So I invented this cereal bowl uh, when in college and uh, I did nothing about it. And then when I was sick with cancer, I revisited it and then it didn't do that well. But then now, since I was back on Survivor just a couple of years ago and all of a sudden social media is here, I have a place to talk about it and a, and a, a collective uh, group of people that might want to buy something like this. So I launched a Kickstarter and we did it and it's good and we're selling bowls like crazy right now. So if- So uh, what is it? So you- So if you imagine you, a swimming pool, a swimming pool's got a shallow end and a deep end. Same with the crunch bowl. You keep your cereal up top, you put your milk down below and you want a little crunch, you just tap it right over the edge. So the way I do it is I load the shallow end with cereal and I put a little cereal in the deep end and I fill that with milk. And then, you know, I can eat. It's also good for chips, dips, salad, dressing, hummus, carrots, apple pie, ice cream, French fries, ketchup, whatever you want. Microwave safe, dishwasher safe, ergonomically correct, lefty and righty. This is your crunch wall. This is your cereal slide, milk shoot. This is also a, uh, a spoon rest. And if you're really bored, you can always put it. It's a cell phone snack bowl. 
It is the Super Bowl, the Swiss Army Knights of Bowls. That's fantastic. Where and what's it called? It's called, it's called the, the Crunch Bowl, and it comes in green and blue, and we're making more colors. Uh, it's stackable as well. Like that. Um, I'm totally getting one for my kid. Yeah, and there. Crunchbowl.com. Okay, I was going to say, are you on Amazon or go to Crunchbowl.com? Mycrunchbowl.com. My my Crunchbowl. Okay. Yeah, thank you All so right. much. Like that. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. MyCrunchbowl.com. We got it. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about, you just mentioned cancer. So my husband actually just um, just one year ago, almost to the day, um, left the hospital. He had he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, and um, it was a long road of um, everything that you can get. He He's had it uh, in terms of treatment. And then the last... Um, so we had the chemo and then chemo and radiation and then had the, um, surgery, which was a significant surgery where it was an eight hour front and back doing things, changing his anatomy. Um, the surgery itself was, was definitely, um, like a, an intensive surgery, the, but the likelihood of him surviving it was good. Like it wasn't like the surgery was necessarily going to kill him. Right. Like they, if we got to that point, he was going to, supposed to kind of have that surgery. It would have been a lo- it's like a long road to recover from it, but the sur- surgery itself it shouldn't have been as life-threatening as it became. So as he uh, was out of surgery, he got an infection and then um, eventually had to be vented and it kind of went very south, um, but he survived it and um, has been this kind of amazing um, you know, kind of rebirth, if you will, in terms of like to see someone go through all of the treatment and what that does to somebody, but then kind of even further after the surgery and having to, it's the human body is amazing to me in terms of watching it, his recovery. And then while he was getting surgery, the day um, that he was in surgery, the FDA approved immunotherapy for his type of cancer. So unbelievable. Um, he just went today. Actually, we were talking about it. Uh, but um, so it's been an, an incredible, we have three boys. We have a um, now a senior in high school, a freshman in high school and a seventh grader. So this was all a year ago. Um, you know, never had really any sickness before. Really, he had never had any issues. It was kind of just everything at once, you know, in terms of like getting diagnosed and then figuring it out. So um, so when Tara and I talked and she had mentioned that you're also a cancer survivor, she's like, I really think you guys should talk. I think you, you know, get a lot out of it, but just tell me a little bit about your journey with this. And I, I think I've seen like it, it resurfaced for you. So that's gotta be hard. Just tell me, I mean, I know that's probably, we could have spent a whole hour just on that, but I am curious for someone who was an athlete and obviously, you know, physically very able to do all the things you want to do. I'm sure having this kind of diagnosis and that impact for you. Tell me, tell me about that. Sure. Well, I'm sorry to hear the news, but Thank happy you. that things are on, on the right path. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I would suggest if there's an organization that uh, I joined totally free, it's called Immerman Angels and for your husband and for you and for your kids. So like, it's basically like dating. It's like dating for cancer that they set me up with a 35 year old lymphoma survivor who had a girlfriend who was sporty who survived. And so there was my mentor angel and we could talk back and forth. But my mom signed up for it. My girlfriend at the time signed up for it. My brother signed up for it. So they set my brother up with a brother of a kid who had cancer, you know, so like they could kind of um, commiserate, ask questions. So for your kids, I'm sure they could set What's them it up. called? Immerman Angels. I-M-E-R-M-A-N Angels. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I felt, you know, where, you know, nothing creates comfort and confidence more than knowing you're not alone when going through a life right. challenge. So for your husband to talk to some folks who've been through this and survived and living a healthy, happy life might be. Yeah. Something. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, you know, I found talking to people outside of my network was uh, easier for me than to talk to my mom and my brothers about the stuff that I was really going through. Um, in hindsight, I'd probably change that uh, at this point. But with my cancer, yeah, I mean, I was 35 years old on top of the world training for the New York City Marathon, and I had some really itchy skin and tried every pill, cream, potion, lotion known to man. And it wasn't until I found a six centimeter by 12 centimeter mass in my chest and a swollen lymph node. And I was diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer. And uh, so I went through multiple rounds of chemotherapy, 20 blasts of radiation, and I had an autologous stem cell transplant. Uh, which was great. Got the cancer intermission uh, for about 20 months. Cancer returned. 
and like getting the news that the cancer returned that was I was like deflated exponentially more difficult than the first time around right. and uh I had to go through it all over again chemo radiation I had a second stem cell transplant using my brother Lee as the donor and uh I'm happy to say that I've just reached 10 years I celebrated by running the Boston Marathon last month um to celebrate being 10 years in remission Wow. Congratulations. What would you say is, was the, I mean, the hardest part of that for you, right. In terms of that whole journey and, and not, you know, it's kind of, I think once you have it, it's just a part of your life, right. That you, like, I was just talking to someone else that, um, has, you know, is, is going, he's had it and, you know, it's feeling to me more like, it's, it's almost like AIDS in that it's like, you're, you know, people, so many people have it now, (laughs) and different ways of, and different uh, degrees of severity, right. In terms of how it's being managed. And now obviously his life will be changed forever. And it's just part of your life. So, but tell me for you, what were some of the most challenging aspects of it? Well, for me, it was the after cancer, to be honest, you know, I, when a doctor tells you to do something, you die, you pretty much do it. <laughs> you know, there's no choice. It's pretty right. easy to get through cancer. Right. You know, like you do right. this, you do that, you do this. Great. Um, but for me, it was the after cancer when I was back in my apartment, bags full of prescription pills, all my friends disappear to get back to their life. And just, you're not surrounded by the, the, the love of your friends and the help of the nurses and being in the hospital. Like that's when things got horrible for me. The, the fear of relapse, the dump trucks full of uncertainty, the invisible scars that needed the healing. And, you know, being a young adult, 35 years old with the rest of my life to live, you know, there was a, a real, a real fear of, of, of just, it got to a debilitating situation in my life where I definitely had to work on some like mental health, you know, strategies yeah. to get through these dark moments. So that was, was, it still is the most difficult part of cancer is for me the after, and they don't tell you about that <laughs> when you're going through it. They don't say they, they just want to get you through it and get you to survive. And then they just send you on your way. And that was difficult for me. I think too, I don't know about you, like, and I actually, I'm going to interview him too. I haven't interviewed him yet, but I, um, yeah, I'm going to, you know, it's like, I should get him in here, but, and he's like, he wants to talk about it, but I think part of this too, and I think he'd be fine with me saying this, like, it's like, what is it all? What he's not a spiritual, like really, I shouldn't say he's not a religious person. Um, when he almost died, um, he didn't see a white light. There was no, it was just sort of nothing. Um, and so I think for him, part of it is if, if you, he certainly, there are certain things that have changed behaviorally for him just because of the experience where I think he appreciates the present more. And it, and there's certain things that like, he absolutely is, is different. He's different because of it, but that whole, like the purpose and you get the second chance and what do you do with it? And I think there's some pressure there of like, you know, how do you, seize this opportunity. And if, and if you don't in a way that other people think you should, right. Yeah. Like in a judgment, right. Like, how do you, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing. I'm sure it's personal to each, you know, human that goes through it. And, and he's still in it in a way. He said he's a year yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's, a baby. yeah. he's still in yeah. it. And I think that comes a little bit with time, but I, you know, there is that pressure, you know, I think in, in one sense, you know, people are like, cancer is a gift. You know, like, you know, I, uh, you know, because in a way where like when you're diagnosed with cancer, everything in your life up until that point in your life, all of a sudden is under a microscope and gets magnified. And in some way that could be a blessing. We're like, okay, now I can look at my life. I can reassess. And when you're like, holy shit, whoever's out there, if you're not spiritual, like if I get through this alive, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Well, now you really can do X, Y, and Z. On the flip side is like, I, you know, your husband's probably living a really great life and happy with his life and maybe not need to make those changes, right? Like I was, you know, I didn't need to make some crazy huge changes. You know, I was philanthropic. I love my family. I had a good set of friends. I, you know, had a, a decent job. So like, yeah, there are some things, but it wasn't like, holy shit, totally life-changing moment for me. Um, learning more about myself and... Uh, understanding how uh, resilient the human body is. And uh, that was helpful for me. And I definitely met a lot of incredible people in my life and learned a lot about you know, health and wellness and how to take care of myself. I mean, that was all a blessing, but I, there is pressure to, to feel like you have to have this life-changing moment. And I think that will come with time, 
with a little, you know, retrospection and, right. you know, but uh, I understand the pressure and I would just tell them to worry about it. <laughs> I know. Or anyone, right? That's However kind you're of... feeling right now is the, is the right way to feel. Like my whole thing was like, just, just make sure today is better than yesterday and tomorrow is better than today. And that's it. That's all you got to do. Yeah, for sure. Tell me a little bit too, just about your habits. Like you were talking about, you learned a lot about health and, and well-being. And I think even going back to your kind of athlete days and, and just being someone like you were saying, I say yes to things like, are there, are there, I ask different people in different professions that I think are successful this question. And I, I always find it fascinating. Like, what are your rituals, right? Or what are the things that you do that you think position you to be so successful, right? Because um, you're, in, you're, in, you're engaged in a lot of different things, right? And so tell me what some of those things are that maybe would be helpful for other people to know, like, what are some of the things you do? Well, I think, especially with cancer, for me, it was all about like uh, acceptance and mm. control. Like when you get diagnosed, it's a very uncontrollable feeling. There's this thing going on inside your body uh, that's trying to kill you and you can't do anything about it. So like, I looked for ways to get control back over my own body, right? I was doing everything the doctor said, but then for me, that was some alternative therapies, mm. like exercise, eating well, you know, I went into the whole visualization and meditation and Reiki and all that stuff. So yeah. being able to find ways to get control back over my own emotions was helpful. And you still use that in my life today. That's yeah. great. Um, um, that's the control part of acceptance, a little bit of the same line, like, you know, especially what was going on with the pandemic, you know, accepting what's going on is the only way to move on to the next step of the process. Like how are you going to map out how you want to live the rest of your life? Like if you're living in denial of what's going on in your life, whether that's work, love, health, whatever it is, if you're living in denial, that's not a, a good way to live. Um, and that's, I think one of the main reasons why after cancer was, was so difficult. I was in denial. Like all my other friends are just starting their life. Well, I'm pressing pause button on mine. Like I value my health and fitness. The, the way I know that I'm physically fit is if I can like go out and run a mile or play soccer, I couldn't do any of that. Um, so yeah. being able to create more balance in my life and stop living on the extremes and being okay with like a lesser version of myself on different ways that I used to like, I did, I don't look as good anymore. I'm not as like physically fit anymore, you know, like, so all those things, I just had to readjust and look at myself and be okay with that and accept that what was, what was going on in my life. So I could actually move on and actually live. Cause I wasn't living. I was stuck in denial and ruminating on negative thoughts on a daily basis. And it just was not a way to live. I feel like that's so uh, important for people to hear, because I think, again, it relates to, to, all of us in, a, in our own way when you're stuck mm. and you like want to change or you want to have some sort of behavioral change or you want to get like to have a better tomorrow. <laughs> and so, you know, the acceptance piece or the, the acknowledgement, like you, in order to do it, you have to do it. You know, you can't just sit, you know, and it's hard when you sometimes when you're, whether it's clinically, right, you're depressed or have other mental health issues or just generally, um, you know, I think can be, we can be stubborn, right. Or we can want things without maybe having to like put in the change. Um, so all of those things you talked about, I feel like it's such good messaging. And I think the last part of that would be, yeah. you know, um, you know, I kind of live my life by, you know, making sure to never let a crisis go to waste because it's an yeah. opportunity to do some really important right. things. Very cliche. However, I found that even in the middle of my cancer nightmare, I try to use my diagnosis to like help others out there. Like the details of my life could help someone else. So like I, I went public, I blogged, I talked, I did everything I could to share my story because I feel like focusing on the challenges or focusing on the plight of other people helps you heal as a human being. Oh, right. And it kind of distracted me from the reality of my own situation. And I felt, okay, if, if worst case scenario, if I get this thing takes me, at least I'm helping other people in a moment. And that made me feel good about myself on a daily basis if I was helping other people even when I was going through a tough time so yeah acceptance control and like just kind of like uh, helping others um through their crisis was something that I felt was was helpful for me in my crisis <laughs> yeah for sure all right do you have time for one more question sure. actually two <laughs> so so one is um and we've talked about it a little bit in the beginning and it really relates I think to your time on survivor which is relationships and networking. So I think, um, I'm a huge fan of soft skills development. I think it's so important. Um, it's kind of my passion project, right? I'm, I'm like 
sort of taken my career and said, um, and I've been given a lot of a great opportunity to say, I'm going to take the next 20 years if I'm lucky and try to help evoke some change because I feel like we're in a crisis and an epidemic with our young people and with our entry-level talent and with people that, you know, there's just um, not as much of an education happening around soft skills development. So for you, being an entrepreneur, being in the media, like I'm sure a lot of people listening to this were like, I want, I want to be on Survivor. <laughs> I want to be on TV. I want to have, you know, a philanthropic engagement where I get to do what I love. So tell me for you, if you could pick one or two soft skills that you feel have helped you to be successful in life, what would those be? I would say being selfless, being uh, a teacher, mm -hmm. being a member of the community uh, would be kind of the soft skills that I feel have helped me most in life. I'm a very collaborative person. Um, I feel that having these relationships with other people uh, and like, it goes back to survivor. I hate to admit, you know, like finding, yeah. know, knowing yourself and knowing what you're good at and knowing what you bring to the table and then finding other people that complement that uh, is kind of what I look for, uh, you know, when be, being a, a uh, an entrepreneur in, or starting something or creating a relationship with someone. So, you know, in terms of being selfless, you know, that, that is, I just mentioned that before being a yeah. teacher, you know, being able to use, teach other people about, you know, what, what's going on in the world or what's going on in your life. For example, like on Survivor, they literally on purpose put me in a tribe with a guy who's never met a Jewish person before. I'm Jewish. And I had never met anyone who's never met a Jewish person before. So like they wanted to see what would happen. So he was definitely treating me really different than everyone else in the game. And so I never thought my religion would, would be a deciding factor, but it was. So I could have gotten pissed off. I could have tried to vote this guy off, but that would have been too easy. Instead, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to educate him about the foods we eat, the holidays we celebrate, the rules of our culture. Because once, and, and you know, I got to know this guy, his name is Big Tom. Once I got to know this guy, it gave me like a bridge to understanding. It gave me empathy. It gave me compassion. It gave me a better understanding of where this guy came from and how we can work together to achieve these common goals. So like, that's what I mean by being a teacher, mm -hmm. uh, being a member of the community. I talked about that already as well. Just like embedding myself um, in the community, um, yeah. you know, making these personal relationships and partnerships with other folks. I feel like that, that the collaborative nature and the way you described it is so helpful and insightful. And the idea of, I don't think we ask enough questions mm -hmm. of other people. So when you're trying to collaborate in, uh, in some way, whether it's in school or in a job or even in friendship, you get very focused on what you want out of that experience versus like what's happening for the other person or let me understand more. It just helps to your, I love the words that you used around bridge and just an openness to understanding. And then two people that probably would never have been friends, right? But but through through a forced experiment, right? You learn something for sure from that. And then you get some exposure and it, it just changes you, right? For the next time. Definitely. For yeah. sure. All right. And the very last thing, which maybe you've alluded to already, but I am curious when you think about, and you've been through so much, um, you know, particularly too, like losing your dad so young. So I'm just curious if you think about, um, young Ethan, right. In terms of like what you could tell him or how you could coach him to feel a little bit more confident in your life or make kind of the, the life, the life that you've had, maybe like a little easier, right. A lot of people say like, everything happens for a reason. And I believe that, but I also think <laughs> that there's opportunities to say, I could have made this a little bit easier for you. Right. And, and what would that counsel be? It, it definitely would be, I was, uh, I was very self-conscious uh, mm. about uh, the way I looked, the way I acted, how other people were perceiving me that, you know, I just wasn't, uh, I wasn't happy in my own skin. And this was after my dad died, whether that was a reaction to what happened or that was just my natural maturity process. Right. But I would just like, look back at myself and like, dude, it doesn't matter. Just like chill out a bit, relax. No one really cares. You're fine. It's all going to work out, but you know, don't, don't be so hyper-focused on all these little, like this curl is out of place and this collar has to be like this and I gotta be full of muscles and stuff. I was just, uh, I don't know where that came from, but um, I would just tell myself to just chill out and relax a little bit. Yeah, that's great advice. We have um, 
we had senior night the other night and my youngest, we all got to walk across the field, right. Where they said that my kid that's play soccer, or whatever. And the youngest was like, I don't, I don't want to go. I don't want to, I'm like, nobody's looking at you. Nobody cares. He's like 12 years old. <laughs> it's like, cause you're in your head and it's all about you. I'm like, no, nobody's looking at you. Nobody. It's like, isn't it funny it's though? It's not always about me. Is that what you're saying? Oh my God. <laughs> How can that be? Years, yeah. uh, you know. <laughs> Well, this has been a pleasure. I feel like um, there's so much more we could have talked about, but hopefully um, it was a good experience for you. And I think honestly, we, we touched on all the things that I was hoping to just in terms of the different pivots and um, the different sort of moments, you know, not certainly all the moments uh, that are significant for you, but it's been really a great opportunity. And I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I love the conversation as well. So. All right, well, and best of luck with the bowl. Thank you. Thank you very much. One more time, www.mycrunchbowl.com. You got it. Okay, good. We got it. Um, And I wish you the best and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Ethan. So many great pieces of advice throughout our discussion and some that really stuck out for me. One, you mentioned being self-aware and how important that is and really the acceptance that you need to have once you are self-aware about certain things. Once you gain that acceptance, you can move on or you can affect change. I loved what you said about being selfless and helping others and being part of a community or impacting community. And then also in terms of advice to your younger self around not taking everything so seriously and getting really more comfortable in your own skin. All such great advice. Thank you so much. Thank you to Hannah and Missy for producing this episode. And a huge thank you to our Relatable community for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment and subscribe either on YouTube and leave comments there or on your favorite listening platform. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, and you can find more information about Relatable and our sponsor by visiting www.tfasoftskills.com. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.